This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. One minute past nine. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you are listening to 102.7 through Triple R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And my name is Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well, Dr Burton. <laughs> Burton. Good, good to hear. Yeah, any relation to Richard Burton? Well, my brother is Richard Burton and my grandfather was Richard Burton and my great-grandfather was Richard Burton, but none of them were the actor. Hence you are such a great orator. <laughs> I wish. Hey, thank you, Tim, very much. Thank you, Andrew, very much for soulful bits or stoneful bits as it was this morning. <laughs> it was indeed a lovely surprise for uh, forecast by Tim. Yeah, loving soulful bits every Sunday morning. I miss that. About eight o'clock. If I was, you, um, I was schlafing, as the Germans would say. <laughs> yeah. Been nice thing, nice, nice little segment to wake up to, actually. Uh-huh. Today's program, uh, we are going to be joined in studio by our own Captain Windshift very soon, hopefully. Mm. Um, well, here he is. Well, here he is at the door. Fantastic, he's at the door. and he's going to talk to us. Oh, about, hey, Captain! We're, we're going to chat about the circus that was the America's Cup. Unrecognisable. Right. So I wanted to get a sailing professional in to talk to me about, and all of us indeed, all those who are lying in bed snuggled up in the doona, about what in the hell was that? I mean, was that sailing? Um, let's wait 10 minutes and yeah. get into that in some more depth, as it were. And um, for me, I the whole thing has passed me by, so I'm quite looking forward to hearing it. I didn't even know it was a circus, Dr Beach, so... Wow, that's what it looked like to me. Concentrating on other things, so that's going to be really interesting. We are then going to be crossing to Dr Surf for a surf report, I believe. A live surf report, that's right. Nice. I think he's ringing in from Revs. What's Revs? Revolver. All oh, right. <laughs> We're never going to be able to forget that. No, no, no. I think in, we're fact, in fact, we have to let that, let that go. I've been told that um, 
<laughs> Robbie's getting a bit over that. So oh, is he? Robbie, I'm sorry for banging on about that, but that still amuses me immensely. But we love you dearly. We're simultaneously kind of amused and traumatised by that experience. No trauma at all, no trauma there. <laughs> then we're going to be joined in studio by David Hurst. And David and I have been, as we turned out, reconnecting in the green room. And there's a bit of a story behind that, which is going to be very interesting. Well, I think it is anyway. Um, David is a former neuroscientist, uh, now retired, who has uh, discovered a, a real talent and passion for um, art. And he has an exhibition coming up at 45 Downstairs that actually kicks off this week called Wet Feet. And the theme and the essence of the exhibition is about the impacts of climate change on sea rise and particularly uh, communities in the in the Pacific region that will be immediately affected. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to having David in studio. Fantastic. Yeah. Look forward to that. And then at the end, I'm going to do a couple of papers, do, as it were. Well, one in particular, one that really attracted my attention, Air, gar- air gun blasts kill plankton. So number, it's got plankton in the title, but we've had on the show, we've had John Gibbons on the show talking about air guns, so seismic surveying that they do for looking for petroleum products and all that stuff below the sea, below the seabed. John and others worried about large animals, mammals, um, has to watch for those. Mm. Gun goes off, lots of noise. Does it affect whale behaviour? People have wondered about whether it affects fish behaviour. There's very little data on that. But everyone forgets about the plankton, of course. Mm. Um, group in Tasmania has just done a study, just published a study saying that it does indeed have pernicious effects on the zooplankton, at least. So I'd like to pull that apart. Great. That'll be at the end of the show at about 10 to 10. If Brilliant. You're deeply interested in listening to that, which you should be. I am. Yeah. Very much looking forward to hearing about Fascinating that. Fascinating stuff. A uh, weather report, if you please. Oh, I can Finch. do the weather. That's right. Um, According to the Sunday age, uh, partly cloudy, high chance of showers today, most likely in the morning. Winds north, northwest, 20 to 30k per hour, turning west in the morning, then tending northwest, 15 to 20k in the late afternoon. It's going to be a top of 14 today, tomorrow. Top of 15, it's looking like just looking ahead, it's going to be a top of, it's going to be 6 to 15, 5 to 14, those kinds of temperatures all week. Or Wednesday morning might be a bit cooler, down to 3 degrees. And it's going to be sunny Wednesday. And the other day is just a possible shower, just a little bit of a sprinkle on all of those days. I'm not going to do a surf report. I'm not going to read out Swellnet from the age because we have our very own Dr. Surf who's going to make a bit of a comment on that, actually, and give us a live surf report from down on the Mornington Peninsula. But the tides, for those of you who are interested in getting out on the water, you will be wanting to know that... It's going to be high tide at the heads at 12.30 this afternoon and it was a low tide of 0.48 metres at 5.30am this morning mm. at Point Lonsdale. So that would be slack kind of reasonably soon, I would have thought. Yeah. Hey, hat tip to all you uh, rough, tough divers out there that are diving through Melbourne winter. You, I'm just, I'm in awe of you all. I think you're incredible. I've been seeing some photos coming up on the social medias because it's so cold? No, because the, the water clarity tends to be pretty good at this time of the year. Oh, right. So um, there's some uh, incredible, just beautiful, stunning images coming out of Port Phillip Bay. I don't know about you, Dr Beach, quite a few of my friends have um, zoomed off to various tropical parts of the world and so the the, oh. <laughs> the Facebook postings coming through just kind of leave me in a sobbing wreck on the floor, but it's, it's very nice to see people are still out there and diving in the middle of winter. Yeah. 
It's indeed good. A couple of quick plugs and then we're going to play a track. Um, the Thin Green Line have uh, reached 10 years of protecting rangers and wildlife. They've got a green carpet gala uh, taking place Tuesday week, so Tuesday July 18 at 7.30pm, um, featuring live music, the Melbourne Scar Orchestra, Witiana and Yermal Marika, former Yothu Yindi, Marty Nelson-Williams, who we adore and have played many times on this program, uh, Jam Roots, who pretty much, pl- I think they've played every single um, Thin Green Line Foundation uh, uh, gig or event, and they're absolutely fantastic as well. So they are turning 10. Uh, if you want to get along and support them, please do. Uh, in fact, Sean is going to be Sean Wilmore, who is their founder and, um, and I believe still president of the International Ranger uh, Federation, is uh, going to be joining Tracy Hutchison for Sunday lunch at 1pm today. Nice. So if you want to hear more about it, make sure you tune into Sunday Lunch and hear Sean and Tracy talking about Thin Green Line and their wonderful 10-year milestone. Um, also, I have, should mention too, at this event coming up, Professor Tim Flannery is going to be their keynote address speaker. Uh, and also Sean Wilmore will get up and speak as well and two incredibly inspiring speakers. So you can get tickets through Ticketmaster um, uh, or you can... Uh, actually, that's probably about the best way to do it. Um, and please note too, because of licensing provision, it's an over 18 years event only. So um, we'll put some details to that on our Facebook page. I think we might hear a track. I have another plug, but I might save it. Let's hear a track. Hey, uh, Tex, Don and Charlie have got a new release called You Don't Know Lonely. It's a wonderful album. I have listened to it cover to cover. Kent is nodding with the thumbs up. It's <laughs> Kent's panelling for us today, our technical producer. Uh, and I'm playing this for Triple R's extremely wonderful, I cannot give enough positive adjectives about this man, Richard Watts. He had a significant birthday this year. And, uh, Richard, if you're listening, this is for you. This is called How Good Is Life? to welcome into studio. We're going to fix up his headphones. I'm going to do that for you. You can do the introductions, Dr Beach. Oh, all right, I will then. Yes, it's Captain Winshift from our fair um, Port Melbourne Yacht Club. It's not the Royal Port Melbourne Yacht Club. It's the, it's the Port Melbourne Yacht Club where I imagine they're all sort of freezing. Come on, Bronco, get those jugs together for me. This is not as easy as it seems. <laughs> it's like gone backwards. I'm going to hand it over to Kent. He knows what to do. But any, anyway... Captain, you, you can sp- still speak. You, you to speak without your, your headphones it's, for it's a, a second. Bit weird, I though, can speak it? without my headphones. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, that's right. You're looking resplendent this morning with a little sort of gum-nut hat on to keep your scone oh, warm. Thanks very much. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Kent's fixed it for you. Oh, thank you. You're a legend, Kent. Thank you. Oh, look at that. I've got ears, but I've got no sound in them. <laughs> no how, sound how in thing, them. How things down at Port Melbourne at the Yacht Club? Cold? Absolutely. Um, doesn't stop us, though. There was a nice group of our 
ooh, would have been about 10 boats out yesterday, myself included, doing a bit of training. In the, in, in the dinghies? In the dinghies, That's yes. right, because you're in dinghies. You're, we don't talk keels here, do we? No, no, no keels. So it does involve actually getting in the water. So we cheerfully wheeled our boats down the beach and stepped into the water and all went... I won't repeat what we all said, but you know, you've got the general <laughs> idea. Good guy. It's a little bit chilly this morning. Yeah, something like that. Right. Yeah. Yikes. Yikes. Or something Yikes, like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was glorious, um, so we had a really good sail. So uh, through winter, there's always a, a keen bunch of lunatics that go out and sail and keep training all through winter. And, ke- and, keep, insane. and ke- keep maintaining, I guess. It's the time to put a, another coat of shellac on the hull. Is that what you do? Yeah, I think um, shellac went out quite a while ago. <laughs> oh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't use insect exoskeletons anymore yeah, for it's it. it's all and carbon fibre and epoxies oh, and things right. like that. Yeah. Talking about carbon fibre and stuff fancy in the sailing world, I was at the Community Cup talking to um, a friend of mine, Elizabeth, a few weeks ago. Community Cup. Were you there, by the way? Did you go? No. Oh, we'll get you there it. next year. Get you there next yep, year. Sounds good. You could just about play. You've been on this show so often. Do you, you play could, footy? You could, you could be a footballer. Oh, look, I grew up in Melbourne and I don't know one end of a football from another that, one. It's you know very what? embarrassing. That is, that is not, a, um, an, issue. not an excuse. No. <laughs> no I, I'm starting to realise that, yes. <laughs> it's not a precluding criterion to play football, at least for the megahertz. In fact, at one of our star players, his very first game of football was the Community Cup. Excellent. And mm. it's called the megahertz. The team's called the megahertz. Indeed. I love it. We are. <laughs> and we play the Rock Dogs. Excellent. Well, I, I say we in the broadest sense. I don't get out there and get broken either. Anyway, I was at the, I was at, I was at the America's <laughs> Cup yakking to Elizabeth. Elizabeth said to me, and Elizabeth was on the show a while ago. She's from the Williamstown Yacht Club. Ah, right. Which you, Excellent. You might know. And she said, you, you guys got to talk about the America's Cup. I said, I said yeah, I, I kind of saw on the news a fleeting thing of these things just go zip. And I thought, I, I think the last time I watched the America's Cup was 1983. Right, okay. So, so there's a I, I, huge change I've there. been a bit of a change. And to me, to my albeit untrained eye, it was unrecognisable as sailing. To me, it looked like a circus. Discuss. Discuss. Okay, you're absolutely right. It's been a l- major game changer. Um, Can I ask, before we get into that, and it's relevant... Why did you think it was a circus? Like, define circus. Mm, okay. what, why did you think it was right, a circus? So I, I'm used to seeing... Sailing boats, you know, yes, I have kind of no, and I don't follow this thing, but I have noticed that the boats have been getting kind of slicker and perhaps a bit of carbon fibre. But these things were just going incredibly quickly. Right. And they seemed to have two hulls, maybe three hulls, and then there were these side views of them where they were sitting up out of the water and it's like they were skating on these little... I don't know what you'd call them, foils or something. Foils. And then there were all these dudes in the in the hull. So if, you know, I think they you don't what do you, you don't call it a dimeran, it's a catamaran or a trimaran. So in the hulls there were people cycling. And then I heard that they employ Olympic cycle well not employ, but they oh, get wow. Olympic cyclists now to do this. So they're doing all the all the turning and all this kind of, anyway. Steve, you would be much more erudite at describing this. But, but I, to me, that was just unrecognisable as what one could reasonably call sailing. OK, you're absolutely right. It's, um, it's a major game changer. Um, a little bit of very quick history. Um, and they were fanging. They were going so quick. They are absolutely flying. Just, just to put it in perspective, the umpire boats, media boats, all of the chase boats, which are power boats, are... Uh, Great big 
speedboats, usually with three, maybe four, 250 horsepower outboards on the back, and they're struggling to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> they're really quick, these So days. I've been told that in the last... 10 or 15 years that the average speed of these boats in the America's Cup, if you can call them boats, has gone from like 10 or 12k an hour, maybe 15k an hour, up to 40 or 45k an hour, so it's tripled. Okay, well, it's even worse than that. Jesus. It's gone from about 15 knots up to just under 50 knots. In how many years? Uh, since the last displacement hole, I think 2003 was the last displacement hole. In the last 15 years. Yeah. So and displacement hole, talk about that. Okay, so um, your traditional sailing yacht in the America's Cup was um, based on a box rule where you had a certain length, a certain amount of sail area, and you had a hull that displaced water. So you had you to push everything that into through the water with sail power. So you had to fit everything into a box. That yeah, was really yeah, the only regulation. Rule. So if you made it longer, you couldn't make it higher and so on and so forth. But right. anyway, I won't bore you with the rules. But the big thing was that it was a displacement hull. In other words, it pushed water out of the way and you had a, a limit on the speed, hydrodynamic limit on the speed that the boat could go based on the length of the boat. Yeah. So longer is faster, etc., etc. And you couldn't make it go any faster. You could try, but you couldn't. It was breaking <laughs> the laws of physics. And then they'd moved from wooden hulls to fibreglass oh, yeah, to carbon all, and all of that by then. They were made, amazing. They were pushing the absolute limits of what you could do with a displacement hull. And so is the point that the that winning or not winning the America's Cup then came down to the skill of the people sailing? Oh, it's always been that. Right. Yeah, I mean, as well as technological advancements and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm sure everybody in Australia remembers the, the famous winged keel that Ben Lexon designed for the Australia 2 or whatever it was. can't remember the name of the boat, but anyway. Um, uh, and so that was a technological advancement. But it was still, and it still is, a test of tactics boat handling, boat trim, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that the boats have changed radically. So radically, what, they've, right. what they've done is they've recognised that if you can reduce drag by getting the hull out of the water, you can go faster and faster and faster. And so that's faster. what they were doing. I, would, I, would, I got this clip or watched this clip from the side and yet the boat was indeed out flying. of the water. And, and They're flying. flying. They're foiling. So what they've done is they've gone, okay... Here we have a wing sail on top of the boat and underneath the boat we have another wing, which is a hydrofoil, and it provides lift. So if you look at these boats, they have got a catamaran hull with L boards underneath them, which are hydrofoils, which can be lifted in and out of the water. And on the rudders, and there's two rudders on a catamaran, they have little T-foils on the bottom of the rudders, which also provide lift at the back of the boat. And these things are tiny. The little foils are tiny. But because water is 900 times denser than air, you only need a much smaller area to create the necessary lift. So what they've worked out how to do is basically get the boat up on these very narrow, slender carbon fibre foils and just think about the engineering involved in making that work. Um, How do they they make them? Most of them are made in New Zealand, by the way. (coughs) Fantastic. Yeah, I know. Um, no, actually, we'll, ha- get, we'll get back to the whole New but, but, Zealand. It should be the New Zealand-Australia Cup, really. So the Olympic cyclists being sailors now, mm. or, I, so is it, 
Was that? Did I hear that correctly? That yes, there are you a did. couple of okay. people who were. So, um, just to give people an understanding of what we're dealing with here, you've got a boat that's flying on tiny little foils, and the boat's fifteen metres long, and it wants to fly on foils, but it needs to have a balance so that it doesn't pitch pole into the water yep. or fly out of the water and instantly lose lift and come crashing back down, which is a major problem. So you need to be able or to do balance. A flip. <laughs> or do a flip, yeah. Uh, and, boy, when they stop, they stop. Um, so what they need to do is balance that angle of attack of that aerofoil, like an aeroplane wing. Yeah. And to do that, you could try pulling on ropes, but it just isn't going to happen quickly enough. So what they do is they run everything on hydraulics. So the angle of attack of the foils and the tow-in and lift characteristics of the foils is all controlled with hydraulics. And that hydraulics is driven by people's legs. And that hydraulic power cannot be provided by Arms. external stored energy. So no batteries, no engines. Yep, yep. And so you have to have some form of energy. So they have traditionally run your cr- um, the grinder. cranking grinders. Yep, yep, I can picture that. Perfectly. So that's where all the Iron Man people come in. Um, and the Kiwis went, well... We can use legs because they're stronger. And so they got a whole bunch of cyclists. <laughs> and one of the little advantages of that was that it meant that um, on the Kiwi boat, it meant they had one person who was able to, because his hands were free, he was able to control um, a ride height adjuster all the time. He was just keeping a, a position dial on a screen in position to keep the boat flying accurately. So the skipper or the helmsman actually was able to concentrate on steering. There's something very Fred Flintstone about this. <laughs> yeah, you're right. When you look going. at images yeah, 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 of yeah, this yeah, boat yeah, hurtling yeah. along and people tucked over there cycling, yeah. it's very Fred Flintstone. It's fantastic. Wow. So, again, the cycling, that's not to... I, I thought that was to lift the boat out nope. of the water. No, the it's lift to, it's is to purely keep, by to, the speed. Right, so it's to keep balance to make sure it doesn't No, the, the cycling or... is there just to provide hydraulics. Right. So, for example, on um, Team New Zealand, you've got one great big wing up in the air, just yeah. like we have on a normal sailboat. You have to control angle of attack, relative twist, and all the things you do on a normal sail. But you've got a thing that is the size of a jumbo jet aircraft wing with all of the appropriate loads on it and you're not going to be pulling on strings to do that. So the hydraulics come in again. And they do that these days with effectively Game Boy controllers. (laughs) So they're going, right, I need more twist at the top of the sail and so they're dialling that in on a Game Boy controller with hydraulic power provided continuously by all these cyclists. Fantastic. Steve, that was very illuminating. Captain Windshift, I'm sorry. I've outed you. Do people know you are Steve Houghton? Oh, well, they do they now. Do now. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> we won't give out your mobile phone number. Uh, Captain Windshift from the um, Royal Port Melbourne Yacht Club. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not Royal. It's, it's the Port Melbourne Yacht Club. It's the People's Yacht Club. The Thank People's you. Yacht Club. And I'm going to give it a... a an unfettered plug for the Port Melbourne Yacht Club if people want to get involved in sailing. Um, they should get down. And you all have a Learned Sailing Day coming up in October, I'd imagine, might you? certainly will. We're not quite sure of the dates yet, but mm-hmm. um, it'll be October or November, depending on how it all goes. Lots of fun. Highly recommended. Yes. We, we went to one, Dr oh, Beach. Very kind, lovely people, and they really even deal with doofuses like me. <laughs> Kept me in the water. It was great. It was great fun. Steve, thank you very much. Captain, thank you very much for coming in. And Pleasure. we look forward to having you 
on next time. Thank you very much. Which will be who knows when. In a few weeks. Yeah. We'll chat. Roger. Excellent. Oh, what fun. What fun at Grand Old Twang next week. Can't wait for that. Ripping fun with Denise. Yeah, indeed. And Tim. Mm Mm-hmm. And a great lineup. In fact, uh, oh, I'll get on to that in a sec. Let's firstly go to uh, our Very surf report. Dr. Surf. Dr. Surf's waiting on the phone. Kent, if you would be so kind. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Surf. Morning, Brian. And uh, Dr. Beach is here too. Ah, Dr. Beach. Hey, How going, Doc? I'm very well. How are you, Dr. Surf? Good. I'm doing my, um, I guess, my social duty now by giving you accurate surf reports as opposed to what you get in the age. Well, that's right. I mean, sometimes when I'm reading out the weather, I get tempted to do a, um, a faux surf report by reading out what they have in Swellnap. But, but you've told me that it's a, it's a load of bollocks. Well, no, the problem... Swellnap's fine, um, but the problem is the age. I think they've just... And this is a, an ongoing problem. They've sacked too many people. There's no one left to check. And so the situation that arose two or three weeks ago, some of your listeners might have remembered, we had a very, very large soil come through on a Saturday. It was like five or six metres. Perfect conditions. But that sort of size is dangerous. And when I checked the age surf report for the surf coast, they said fun one metre wave. Ooh. Ooh, that is a bit a tricky. Legal, there's a legal problem in there, I reckon, because I know in America that there's been lawsuits against surf predictors or people promulgating what the surf's like if they got it wrong and someone went down and got injured. So, I mean, I know that's a bit tough, but I think it's better for, for Triple R as a station, and we all know how much I love Triple R, to have something accurate. So if you've got someone here, as in at the beach... Why not use him? Well, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what, Dr. Surf? It's really it's really good that you've brought this to our attention and to our listeners' attention as well because it wasn't that long ago that um, that we were reading from the Swellnet as printed in the Sunday Age and pretty, you know, had, had your big thumbs up and green light for it because it was accurate. It's interesting there's been this change um, and that's, yeah, a, that's a recent what, thing. Yeah, it's not Swellnet. Swellnet are as good as they always are, which, and, and I've been discussing this with the boys too, they're not... They're a guide. Mm. They're not meant to be 100% accurate, like Magic Seaweed's the same. They're a guide, but, but they're pretty pretty good, Swellnet. But the problem is there's no one at the age checking mm. or copying. And, and this happened last year. The, the most comical example I can remember is the Monday after the Doggies won the grand final, the age ran an ad from Victoria University saying, um, bad luck, Doggies, we still support you. Yes. yes. So they had a 50% chance of getting it right, and they got it wrong. So <laughs> yeah. That's my beef about the age at the moment. But you cannot cut, 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 and expect quality to remain the same. It well, that's right. Is that, well, anyway. So j- journalism aside, how is the surf looking down there? You're on the Mornington Peninsula this morning? I am, and believe it or not, I'm, I'm in the car just about to go. And it's, um, I don't normally surf on Sundays, but it's pretty good today, so I'm going to make an exception. Look, it's been good for about oh, six weeks, I think. Six weeks? Um, partic- particularly down in the uh, surf coast. They've just had run, the run from heaven. Four to six foot, four to six foot, offshore, offshore, offshore. So I might say that my mates down there are just, they're not surfed out, but, you know, you've got to work sometime. <laughs> <laughs> got to earn some money. It's not that crowded down there, or it hasn't been during the week. And I've been on leave the last few weeks, and my God, it's just been magnificent surf. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being there on the other end of the horn for us. 
Um, go, the best, Seth hopes he's the best today. It's probably about four foot, one to one and a half metres. There'll be good ways at Flinders. Probably a bit small for Western Port Bay, but there's a front coming through and it's going to get real cold. So we're, we're every piece of neoprene you've got. Okay. Thanks. All right, I will speak to you again next time. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dr. Surf. And yes, we shall indeed defer to you rather than the Sunday age for a while. <laughs> Great. I'll In- speak to you soon. Enjoy your surf. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Bye-bye. Surf. See ya. Our very own Dr. Surf giving us a live surf report from the Mornington Peninsula and to uh, just you know, reminding us to treat what we read in the paper with just a little bit of caution. Yeah. Not that they're wrong, but sometimes that's if, if there is it's an, a bit hard for them to check. If there is an element of doubt, and, and I guess the best thing that you can do, um, particularly on the weeks that we don't have Dr. Surf on, because he's not on every single week, is um, go to the Swellnet page and check that for yourself rather than relying necessarily on what's in printed media. Good idea. Hmm. Hey, it's time to welcome our next guest, Dr. Beach. He, it is. Uh, he, yeah, I'm, I've got a little introduction, which I'm going to read because it's, um, I, think, I think it's important to understand where our next guest is coming from. So he had a, a distinguished career as a research professor in neuroscience uh, at the University of Melbourne. Suddenly finding himself so moved by the effects of climate change on sea levels, he embarked on a painting career and has highlighted the problems being faced by people living on islands in the Pacific Ocean. Wet Feet is David Hurst's first exhibition. It's a commentary on the effects of climate change on the Pacific Ocean. It opens this week at 45 downstairs. To tell us all about it, we've actually got an interesting backstory too. Uh, we're so pleased to welcome to Triple R, I'm going to say artist David Hurst. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. Now, in the green room off air before when we were we were chatting, we realised that we actually worked in the same department over... The 90s, 80s, and uh, there you go. We, we kind of had this connection that goes back there. So I was doing my PhD at Melbourne Uni at the time that you were working there. That's correct. That's correct. And I remember you well and your supervisor. Yes. It's great that I was forgotten and ignored. <laughs> well, we kind of, we were in different worlds. So I was. We were in different worlds. Yeah, and that's that's how it was in yeah. zoology. So I was with Mick Keogh, um in, in his lab slash empire um, and has produced so many incredible um, marine ecologists. And you were in neuroscience with, with Graham Campbell mm. On yep. the floor above, yes. It was tremendously enjoyable time to be there. It was marvellous people and mates. And all the while, Dr Beach, you were next door in botany. I, I, I was, that's right. It's funny yeah. when you think about this, we were all there at the same time, kind of metres from each other and, and, and here we all are today. So before we get to the actual exhibition and its pieces, I thought maybe we might start about your career in neuroscience and, and where the connection with art came about. Where did these two uh, professions collide for you? Um, Well, it's really rather strange. I've always been interested in art and I was very fortunate that when I was in neuroscience I was invited overseas and I would spend a lot of time in art galleries looking at artists' artists' work. But I suppose in my mid-40s, like everyone, I had a career crisis and decided it was time that I should do something different and start painting. And so... I had a friend who's a very well-known artist, Graham Francella, who said, I can teach anyone to paint in three weeks, David. 
So I started and started, and after three weeks he said, don't give up your day job. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. But then when I retired, I went back and I did a Diploma of Visual Arts at CAE, and I now try and pay it full time. And, and what was the change, do you think? So you've gone and had lessons with, with an artist and then you've suddenly found yourself at CAE. Was it, just, was it something to do with freeing up you've sort of walked away from neuroscience and, and you can now sort of immerse yourself in art? Was, would it maybe have been something to do with that? Um, actually, that's a very romantic way of putting it. Okay. It's uh, <laughs> not really like that at all. When I retired, I did absolutely nothing. I sat on the settee. I watched uh, Judge Judy on the television, junk shows the whole time. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to do something. And I'd always been interested in art, so I went back to art. And I should like to point out, actually, paintings are a much more difficult thing than doing science. When you do science, you know you're going to get an answer. When you paint, you're never sure anything's going to work. So. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I actually um, would challenge that when you do science, you don't know if you're getting an answer. <laughs> I'm not saying, perhaps oh, you're, perhaps think, you're just a better scientist than I am. No, oh, I don't think. No, no, no. I think you always. Well, you get an answer, or you know when you're not going to be able to answer the question. Yes. So yes. there is a beginning and an end, but in a way, there's a similar sort of repetition. You try to do things repeated, repeatedly. And with science, at some stage, you know you can't get any further. Mm. But with art, you, you never know you can get it. Yes, yes. Would you agree with that? I, I do agree with that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the Pacific and, and how the, this collection of artwork came about. Can you talk us through a bit about that and sort of what's inspired you to put all of these pieces together that have now formed this exhibition? Um. Actually, it's, uh, I suppose, really, it's a political statement. Um, it's very clear that the environment has been degraded. It's very clear that that's really the result of man-made activity. It's very clear to me that the sea levels are gradually rising and it's very clear that poor nations are the ones that are really going to suffer. It infuriated me when a certain group of our Liberal politicians went to some of the Pacific Islands and the Pacific Islands said, could we do something about the environment? You're a rich country and jokes were made. There are going to be a lot of wet feet about here. So my paintings, which are largely abstract, they figures in them reference um, Pacific Island sculptures and really that's a, a set of cultures that I think are going to be destroyed. And I feel very strongly about this and I think painting can make a gesture, it should make a statement and it is a political social statement I'm trying to make. Mm. How did you... Dr Beach? No? Uh, how, did you, how did you connect with, with 45 downstairs... Have like with the with the paintings that you've been doing. I imagine like so it's an exhibition. It's not just one painting. You've got many of right. them. How how did it go from sort of wanting to capture this into into a piece of art to having so much art that you, there's now an exhibition? Um, 
Actually, well, your introduction got it slightly wrong. Okay. Uh, this is actually it's from a third exhibition. Ah, oh, right. At 45 Downstairs. And 45 Downstairs is an incredibly supportive um, gallery. I, uh, I think you make a series of paintings, you have an idea, an mm. emotion or a, a statement and you try and express that in a number of ways. So my shows have had different ideas. This show expresses my anger about the lack of um, lack of action in tackling climate change, how we're going to alter the sea levels, how we're altering the environment. I'm also very annoyed about the fact how there's all this false publicity which tries to deny that climate change is happening. It's really a very annoying thing. And I think people should stand up and say something. Indeed. How are your paintings stating this? Could you describe some of your paintings for us? You've mentioned that they are abstract and that they are addressing global sea level rise and climate change and they have very much of a political bent. How is that expressed on the canvas, as it were? Um, Well, actually, I'm a beginner and very naive. Really what the paintings do is draw on the facial structures that Pacific artists use. In their essence, they often re- uh, represent a head in an egg shape, and these are largely egg-shaped uh, m- gestures marked which superimpose, and I try and use colour to express the different forms of how people are being affected. So... Really, you need a lot of imagination to actually do that. But I think you make a painting, you try and say something yourself and you let the other person look at the painting and they can interpret it as they want. People might say, "This it's rubbish, it's nothing to do with climate change, it's nothing to do with Pacific Islanders. But they might like the painting, they yeah. might not like the painting, but it's their choice, it's their interpretation. The wonderful thing about art, isn't it? It is a wonderful thing about art. I think we should give some details now. So, uh, Wet Feet runs from now Tuesday, I believe, is the opening. Correct. Through and everyone's welcome to the opening. Oh, wonderful. Please come along if you want, and anyone who's listening. Oh, terrific. So, 11th of July, uh, this coming Tuesday, f- runs for 11 days till the 22nd at 45 downstairs. And uh, there are a couple of images on 45 downstairs website. Correct. Of some of your uh, of some of your paintings. Thanks so much for coming in, David. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you for letting me say something about climate change. It's important. We are in Australia. Could do something. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming in, Was and um, no, no, we're still on air. So thanks so much, David. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, you're all good. And indeed, you were all right. You were yes, fantastic. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so David Hurst, wet feet at forty-five downstairs, and we'll put a link to those on our Facebook page. It is nine fifty-one. You are listening to Radio Marinara on Three Triple R. Now, um, a few weeks ago, we had a phone call from a listener who suggested we play the following track, and uh, I looked it up. It actually goes for twenty-two minutes. So we're just going to play a small excerpt <laughs> with only nine minutes to go. Yeah. <laughs> I might annoy the doctors a bit. So, um, uh, Pink Floyd and uh, from the oh, album Metal from nineteen seventy-one, and um, we're just going to play a little bit of this, and uh, I think it deserves not. We won't be able to ever play the t- full twenty-two minutes, but a bit more of this in some weeks ahead.
I'm just going to want to take my clothes off listening to this, I think. <laughs> oh, Dr. Beach. Goodness me. Right, this is Echoes. <clears throat> Dr. Beach. Dr. Burton, I'd like to talk about a paper which just appeared in Nature, Ecology and Evolution entitled Widely Used Marine Seismic Survey Air Gun Operations Negatively Impact Zooplankton. This is a paper coming out of Tasmania from people who are at the, um, what do you call it again? IMAS, the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, as well as a couple of people from Curtin University. We have talked on this program about seismic surveys where boats go along, exploration boats run by evil demigods like Exxon and people like that. No, I I retract that statement entirely. Setting off these air guns and they really loud noise. If you're standing, if you're next to it in the water, it's been described to like standing next to a Saturn V rocket. These are the things that took people to the moon. Very, very loud. They let them off at periods. A lot of people have been wondering whether they affect whales. We have, in fact, talked to Michael Node and we've talked to John Gibbons on this same program about the studies that people do, looking at whether it affects animal behaviour, whale behaviour in particular. People have also wondered about fish and there have been some anecdotal stories about fish getting aggrieved by this. I, of course, have always wondered about the plankton. Who cares about the plankton? Not enough people. The Mm. plankton are the phytoplankton, the primary producers of the sea, the grass of the sea, which give us every breath, second breath of oxygen we have. Then we have the zooplankton, the animal plankton, which consists of little crustaceans, krill, for example, tiny little shrimp-like things, things which are called copepods, all sorts of stuff, as well as the larvae of many different animals in the sea, Mm. both fish larvae and also the larvae for echinoderms, sea sea stars, invertebrates, invertebrates, all sorts of things that you can think of. This group of people um, in Storm Bay off Tasmania in 2015, early 2015, ran to, they were wondering about this, these authors uh, led by Jason Sammons in Hobart, Mm -hmm. they did some experiments over two consecutive days where they had boats letting off these air guns. So they weren't actually seismic surveys. These were controlled experiments that they did to similar sorts of sounds. Exactly the same kind of thing, used Mm. the same air guns. Um, Took a water sample before they let the guns off, then let the guns off and then take water samples after that on two consecutive days on these transects. Sort of very similar to what you would do if you were Exxon doing a seismic survey or Chevron or any of those. And they sampled the water before and after and counted the... Well, they also they sampled the water, looked under a microscope at the zooplankton, so all these little larvae, shrimpy-type things that we have out there in abundance, which, by the way, feed everything else, mm. the fish and then the whales right up the top, the dolphins, everything you can think of, incredibly important in the ecology of the oceans. They were able to show that... Up to 1.2 kilometres away from where that blast was happening, and that's the furthest that they measured. They didn't think that it'd be worth. They thought that you know, if there were any data to be seen, any results to be seen, that they would be they would disappear by 1.2 kilometres away. That up to 1.2 kilometres away, you had a 60 percent increase in mortality of the zooplankton. 
So sixty percent. Yeah. Wow. So it's killing him. That's amazing. It it's, it is mind Up blowing. Up to one point two kilometres away, and even closer, it's worse. And so the way that they counted the fight, the zooplankton by doing net toes, looking at them under a microscope. They also used sonar to see the reflection back in the water of the zooplankton. They actually saw a hole in the sonar reading after they let off these guns, which they could actually see on day two in the same place. It was so effective that it carried on to the next day's experiment. Mm. Not with, and they controlled for, you know, sort of drift of water and wind and all of that. And that's one of the things they talk about in the paper. Anyway, for those of you who want to read this paper, um, it has been published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. But in Nature itself, um, on the 29th of June issue, if you have look up air gun blasts kill plankton, there's a nice little summary of the paper there. Fascinating stuff, which speaks to, you know, how much more careful we've got to be about what we're doing out there that's in right. the ocean. And the impacts uh, that are not necessarily obvious. Uh, yes, off-target impacts, as it were. And uh, so glad that there are um, researchers out there investigating. There's a lot. There's an enormous amount of fantastic stuff coming out of Hobart. Mm, fantastic. Thanks, Dr Beach. Pleasure. You're going to be back in in a couple of weeks? I guess so. Yeah, that'll be good. Looks like it's a sack between now and then. Don't think that's going to happen. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.